KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, February 22nd. Just how fragile exactly is the COVID-19 vaccine? We'll have more on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. The county says the Petco Park vaccination superstation will remain closed today because of the delayed vaccine shipments. Appointments for second doses were canceled over the weekend. UC San Diego Health says they will automatically be rescheduled. People who had appointments through my UCSD chart should check the website for updates. A new policy now in effect for the San Diego Police Department will set parameters on how officers respond to protests. The new rules dictate when police can give dispersal orders and when they're allowed to fire less lethal rounds. The San Diego Union-Tribune reported on Sunday that the new rules were made in response to last year's protests against police brutality. According to the new rules, the police department's goal is to ensure rallies stay peaceful, prevent criminal activities, control traffic, and facilitate the quote, safe exercise of an individual's or group's First Amendment rights. A local attorney won a temporary restraining order on Friday allowing high school and youth sports to resume in San Diego County amid the coronavirus pandemic. On Sunday, Stephen Grebing said that his firm would be filing similar lawsuits in other California counties this week. That's according to the City News Service. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. KPBS has been tracking the extensive and meticulous planning process involved in launching a COVID-19 vaccination site. As part of our ongoing series, KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento brings us this report on the rigid handling procedures necessary to ensure every dose remains viable. A gentle swirl of the COVID-19 vaccine vial is critical. Anything more could render the dose ineffective before it fills a syringe and penetrates an arm. The risk begins even before the shipped vials cross the threshold at Family Health Centers of San Diego. They're packed very carefully to minimize disturbance. Lisa Duncan is vice president of nursing and clinical compliance at Family Health Centers. She oversees vaccinations at the community clinic. They're frozen, so that helps they don't get sloshed around. It can't even be relocated off-site without a prior okay. They can maybe have one transport that has to be approved in advance to transfer vaccine supplies so that the, everyone knows where the vaccines are. The vaccine's fragility adds an extra layer of complexity for providers. They must inject doses quickly to reach the county's vaccination goal by July, but they also must take great care. Mishandling can destroy the vaccine's potency, and ongoing supply challenges mean backup doses are practically non-existent. 
It's a great art and science of managing that ves- this vaccine. Family Health Center's current small-scale operation in their break room is sort of a trial run. They're planning to vaccinate hundreds of people a day at an upcoming site outside their Logan Heights clinic. But the nation's limited vaccine supplies have delayed its opening, making proper handling that much more critical. So this is a conference room that we've uh, repurposed for staging the vaccine. We have a freezer here that when the vaccine arrives from the manufacturer, we put it right into the freezer. The pharmaceutical grade freezer that's no bigger than a college dorm fridge is the key component. Anything outside the required cold temperatures triggers an alarm. It's hooked up to our Wi-Fi and it'll send us a message whenever or if we have, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if the unit goes out of range, then we're notified immediately. But the vaccine must actually be thawed before it can be used. It'll last up to 30 days in a fridge, but only hours in the room down the hall where dosing takes place. And once the vial is pierced, it has a six-hour shelf life. You're constantly looking at how much needs to go in the refrigerator, um, how much do we pull out and put into the room, how long has it been in the room, Um, How long has it been open since you took out the first dose? It's almost as though you were dealing with uh, chocolate. Dr. Dial Hewlett is deputy health commissioner for Westchester County in New York. He credits another scientist with the analogy, but recounts it to explain the vulnerability of a key ingredient in the vaccine, ribonucleic acid, or RNA for short. And if you have chocolate, you know that if you get to a certain temperature, it's going to melt. Hence the cold. You have enzymes that will destroy the integrity that are not going to be active when you have a very low temperature, but when you have a higher temperature, those enzymes will become activated. Providers like family health centers have coordinators whose sole job is to monitor the safe handling and storage of vaccines. All of us are very much aware of the parameters and back each other up on that, but generally one person is in charge of making sure that the supply is moving out of the refrigerator appropriately. And then at the end of the day, Um, everybody start sharing the vial so that we don't open one up. Every detail here will be duplicated and expanded at Logan Heights. Family Health Centers is hoping it will accommodate up to 750 people a day. But vaccine supply shortages mean it's on hold for now. They're hoping shipments will flow early next month thanks to an upcoming federal program that prioritizes community clinics. And that story from KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. After a suicide death at a COVID-19 isolation hotel last year, San Diego County paid a private company millions of dollars to take over operations. But iNewsource investigative reporter Cody Dulaney says the situation hasn't improved. Medication is delayed. Staff aren't trained to deal with mental health issues. Security guards harass people. Hotel guests and employees say that's what's happening at the Crown Plaza in Mission Valley even after the county hired Equus Workforce Solutions to run the operation. The county has been using the hotel since March to isolate people like William Morris and his wife Martha. They had been living in their SUV. Morris said the county sent them to the hotel after his wife tested positive for COVID-19. I won't put my worst enemy in a place like that. They don't have empathy for people, compassion for people, and they're a bunch of animals running wild. Calls to police about the Crown Plaza have tripled since the start of the pandemic. Many of those calls deal with mental health issues, including suicide attempts and threats. 
A county spokesperson said when issues arise, they've been immediately addressed. An Equus representative said it has implemented policies and trained staff to help those in isolation as much as possible. And that was iNews Source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1 800 273 8255. iNews Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Pay what you can. That's the philosophy of Coastal Roots Farm, a nonprofit Jewish community farm and education center in Encinitas that's helping feed San Diegans. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer says more than 40,000 pounds of vegetables, fruit, herbs, and eggs were donated by the organization just last year. Coastal Roots Farm in Encinitas shares organic produce with those who need it most, a mission it's carried out for five years. They now donate over half of their harvest each year to community members who lack access to fresh food through a farm stand and local hunger relief organizations across San Diego County. Coastal Roots Farm President and CEO Javier Guerrero says the need for food from their farm has greatly increased during the pandemic. Prior to COVID, you know, it was about a third of the produce that we were offering through the Far- Pay What Can farm stand was um, being donated, right? People were needing that food. Um, It's actually grown to closer to two-thirds during COVID. The organization has had a focus on helping local Holocaust survivors, active-duty military and veterans, immigrants and refugees, Native American communities, and low-income seniors and families. The farm stand is open Thursday 12 to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 10 to 3 p.m., and their pay-as-you-can policy is discreetly processed at a cash register. And that was KPBS's Jacob Ayer. One of California's leading voices on housing policy has praised the city of Sacramento for its plans to create affordable housing, or so-called missing middle options. CAP Radio's Chris Nichols reports. The Sacramento City Council supported early plans last month for allowing a greater variety of housing options, including duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes in neighborhoods zoned almost exclusively for single-family homes. These are often called missing middle options because they're more affordable than single-family homes and less dense than large apartment buildings. Sacramento's move won praise from housing advocates such as Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco, who has proposed some of the most ambitious and contentious housing bills at the state capitol. Here he is at a press conference. Sacramento, I think, should be um, something that other, that's a great model for other cities to look to. Not everyone is a fan. Some in single-family neighborhoods say the change could disrupt the character of their community. But city planners and the state senators say options like triplexes and duplexes aren't that different from existing homes. Wiener introduced a bill that would make it easier for cities statewide to allow duplexes and small apartment buildings. And that was Cap Radio's Chris Nichols. Many coaches are embracing California's new guidance on youth sports and hope restrictions will loosen further as cases continue to drop. Cap Radio's Scott Rod has more. It doesn't have everything youth sports advocates wanted, but Ron Gladnick says the state guidance is a good start. 
He's a high school football coach in San Diego and a leader of the organization Let Them Play. At the end of the day, this is a first step and a step as a coaches association we intend to build on because there are other issues that need to be addressed. Soon, all outdoor sports can resume in counties where the COVID-19 rate is at or below 14 cases per 100,000 people. Coaches and teenage players in high-contact sports will also have to be tested every week in counties with lower case rates. Leaders from Let Them Play say they want to ensure teams in disadvantaged areas will have the necessary resources to meet this requirement. Indoor sports can only resume in counties under the least restrictive orange and yellow tiers. And that was Cap Radio's Scott Rod. San Diego, meanwhile, is an exception to the statewide rule since a judge on Friday gave youth sports even more leeway. He said youth sports in San Diego County could move forward and field teams in all circumstances, provided that they use the same COVID-19 restrictions as professional and collegiate sports. Coming up, a conversation from students about why the idea of student loan forgiveness has been gaining traction in mainstream politics. That story next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. It's not uncommon for students to finish college with five or six digits of student loan debt. With the student debt crisis only ever growing, the idea of student debt forgiveness has become more and more popular. Last week, it was a topic of discussion during a presidential town hall. Caitlin Wynn covered the topic for the Daily Aztec, the student newspaper at San Diego State University, and she spoke with KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer. Well, first off, why did you feel this was an important topic to cover for the Daily Aztec? Well, you know, the obvious answer is lots of college students, this affects a lot of them. And San Diego State students are no stranger to student loans. And, you know, for some students, it's the only way they can gain access to a four-year university and get a degree. And in your story in the Daily Aztec, you write there's a recent drop in reliance on loans, at least uh, at SDSU. Why is that? I found that really surprising because you hear so much that people get out and I've talked to young people who are starting their careers who do have six-figure loans, but is the university providing more scholarships? Um, that's definitely a part of it. SDSU has been providing more scholarships and connecting students with more non-SDSU-based ones. But I also think it's another trend of, you know, we're seeing students are more educated on financial aid and the whole system. A lot of them know to seek grants and scholarships before taking out loans and they're also learning the difference between subsidized and unsubsidized loans, as well as comparing different interest rates before they're committing to the loan. So they're getting pretty savvy about loans in general, it sounds like. Now, it's been a challenging year of remote learning during the pandemic, but one benefit has been the pause on student loan interest. Uh, how much is that helping students? Well, it does make some current students feel slightly less worried, but there's still that overall pressure of paying them off once they graduate. And really, this pause is affecting recent graduates and SDSU alum the most because 
Most loans aren't required to be paid off until after about a six-month grace period post-graduation. And I've also noticed that um, the students I've talked to, a lot of them have had to take out more loans during the pandemic as well. So while the 0% interest rate provides some relief, students definitely could use more in terms of relief during the pandemic. Well, I mentioned in the open that uh, there was a town hall this week and President Joe Biden uh, had something to say on CNN about forgiving up to $50,000 in student loan debt. And he isn't sold on the idea. We're going to play this clip and then I want to get your reaction on the other side. I will not make that happen. It depends on whether or not you go to a private university or public university. It depends on the idea that I say to a community, I'm going to forgive the debt, the billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale and Penn and schools, my children. I went to a great school. I went to a state school. Um, but is that going to be forgiven rather than use that money to provide for early education for young uh, children who are come from disadvantaged circumstances? Well, it's not a surprise that most students would be in favor of debt forgiveness. Uh, but among the people you spoke with, do they believe this might eventually happen or is it just uh, something politicians talk about? In terms of like total student loan debt forgiveness, a lot of them are very skeptical. The ones I talked to are optimistic about that 10,000% being forgiven. But overall, from the students that I've talked to, they believe that, you know, while this is a step in the right direction, you know, forgiving some student loans, they believe this isn't getting to the root of the problem. A lot of them cited that they wanted more equitable and accessible tuition. And they also provided some possible solutions in terms of existing loans. So loan consolidation, loan payment extensions, and overall lowered interest, even after the pandemic. Young voters were the demographic that backed Joe Biden the most in the last presidential election. You think uh, higher education and affordability played a role in that? Was that an issue for young people in that campaign? Oh, definitely. Without a doubt. Like those buzzwords, higher education, affordability, that definitely appealed to younger voters. And I, th I believe that's why they, you know, showed up. And a lot of them played a big part in getting Biden elected. Yeah, it's remarkable. I was looking back to 2016 and then comparing some of the notes just in San Diego County in 2020. And so many more young people voted, uh, college age students. It was remarkable. Now, um, how might Biden's view on student debt be received? Of course, this is all fluid. He's got to get this through Congress and even get his own party convinced uh, in the House and the Senate. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the statements he just put out recently, I feel like, I mean, from the beginning, young voters made it no secret. They're going to hold anyone that's in the Oval Office accountable, regardless of who it is. And I know they're very skeptical right now towards Biden and if he's going to hold up to that promise, if we're going to even see 10,000 or if it's going to be even less. I know that from what I've seen and what I've heard from younger voters, this isn't being <laughs> received very well. It's being received pretty poorly. A lot of unrest and anger, but a lot of them say they're not surprised. Yeah, well, politicians disappointing people. <laughs> that unfortunately is <laughs> not new at all in our society. Well, before we wrap up, let's take a big picture look at the college experience right now. It's looking like the full academic year might be done remotely. Things are looking better. The numbers are looking better, but we're a long way from home. Uh, you focus on social media, which is where a lot of conversations happen. How are students at SDSU holding up? Has this been a struggle or are they finding ways to make it work a, a year into this? They're holding on by a thread, honestly. They're feeling really burnt out even this early in the semester. They're having a lot of mental health issues. I know screen time has risen exponentially and a lot of students also took the semester off because of that. And they're just saying that the quality of education just isn't the same online versus in person, which is understandable. 
And I mean, students are still upset about the contentious decision by the university Senate to cancel spring break. They're just overall, when I do a lot of interviews, especially with angered students, they're feeling that like SDSU doesn't care about them or listening to their voice. Well, so much is done on social media now because of course we can't be on campus. And what are students saying uh, to each other in the back and forth, uh, not just in terms of, of loans, but also value for this lost year? Are they getting their money's worth and schooling remotely instead of being on campus? And uh, what does the uh, conversation look like as you uh, interview people yourself and you see the back and forth on social media? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's been a lot of talk about, I regret, <laughs> I regret applying to SDSU. I regret choosing to go here instead because we've heard a lot from other you know, CSUs and other UCs and how they're dealing with COVID right off the bat. And I mean, in terms of other reactions, like Gen Z is a very, you know, they're very into memes. We've seen a lot of memes about it going around because, you know, humor is the best way to cope with the um, communal suffering, if you will. People feel like the tuition price just doesn't match the quality of education we're getting. We, we don't understand why we're paying more. Our tuition was raised too, I think, in fall 2020 to, for I believe it was increased mental health services and more cultural centers. But obviously, we don't have access to that because we're not on campus. And it's still really hard to get mental health help online. Maybe when you get back to campus, eventually, we might see some protests or marches or banners that say uh, remote refund or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I recently I seen a thing going around about how students can put input because President Adela is getting evaluated. I've seen that go around like not a lot of students know this, but you can actually submit your thoughts and your comments, too. And so people have been spreading that on their Insta stories and sharing it on Twitter. That was Caitlin Wynn, a social media editor for The Daily Aztec, speaking with KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.